Now, it's hard for us, isn't it, to kind of imagine what it would be like to live under real persecution. I mean, imagine if, if you read in the Eastern Daily Press last night that it has now become illegal to be an evangelical Christian. So that, that, that they warned that anyone who came to any of these churches that were deemed to be evangelical, the doors would be barred, the police would be there ready to arrest anyone who would try to insist on worshiping God that way. Can you imagine if you read that? Can you imagine being in a place where you might feel afraid to say to people that you actually believe in this Jesus? Imagine being in a place where if your boss found out that you are one of those, you might be dismissed or for sure lose a promotion. Imagine being in a place where your neighbors would look at you with contempt, maybe even spit at you because you were the kind of person that followed this Jesus. We can't even imagine that, can we? It's really hard for us. We have so much great freedom in this country. It's hard for us to imagine what that would be like. But if you think about it, if you try to to get your head around that, you can maybe empathize with what these people were going through, the people that this author is writing to. And we don't know who's written the book of Hebrews. Some would believe it's Paul. Others would say Apollo. Some say Luke. We don't know for sure. But we know that the author was writing to Jewish believers in Jesus who, because of persecution, were thinking, maybe there's a better way. Maybe this Jesus stuff doesn't bring us the benefit we thought it would bring. Maybe we need to maybe go back to Judaism. And so you have a situation where the author is writing to these these people and wanting to encourage them to endure, wanting them to encourage them to push forward. And I love the fact that Hebrews starts in a way that really we have a couple other books in the Scriptures that start this way. It starts the way Genesis starts, in the beginning God. It starts the way John's Gospel starts. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, it starts with the person of God. It begins with this assumption that God is real. That's a pretty big assumption in one sense, until you begin to think, well, why wouldn't you begin with that assumption? And I'm not going to get into all the different kind of arguments we could about the existence of God today. We could spend some time. It would be a a worthy topic to talk about what are the the reasons, the philosophical reasons we believe there is a God. But, But suffice it to say, most of the time, if we want to convince ourselves there is not a God, we want to do so mainly because we think, well, it might be more acceptable societally, at least here in Great Britain, or maybe because we want to convince ourselves there's not a God because we like the idea, we don't like the idea that we're accountable to somebody else, somebody greater than ourselves. We don't like the idea of being out of control. And let's be honest, if there is a God and we are accountable to Him, it's kind of a scary thought. But the Scripture never seeks to prove to anybody that God exists. It just makes the assumption that there is this creator God who is, who has always been and always will be. And Hebrew starts that way mainly because the Hebrew people who he'd been writing to would start that way as well. They would start with the assumption there is God. God is real. God is who He said He is. And so what he wants to do is begin to, in the beginning of this book, make it clear that this God who is, this God has spoken. And so he says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers 
by the prophets. So he begins with this assumption that God is real, God exists, and he moves right into saying, okay, now this God has spoken, and he's spoken first and foremost by the prophets. God spoke by the prophets. This is important because when he says various times and in various ways, interesting that that phrase there, various times, it means in various portions. And it's this idea that there's not, there wasn't a single Old Testament prophet who said all that God wanted to be said. They spoke different things to, to God's people for different reasons. But also just the fact that there's a variety of ways that they, they communicated or God communicated to them and through them. We see God communicating His Word through them with dreams or visions. We see God directly speaking at times, specifically to Moses. We see God speaking uh, through different various signs where He would confirm what He had said through a miraculous sign. There's just, uh, if you read the Old Testament, there's just a variety of ways that God spoke. But what the Scripture is clear about, especially in Amos chapter 3, verse 7, that surely the Lord God does nothing unless He reveals His secret to His servants, the prophets. This is important. Because the Hebrews understood, and we need to understand, that God wants to communicate in an objective way. That though there is a subjective element to our faith, in a sense that only you can understand or know for sure that you know God. I can look at you and take you at, for, you know, take you at your word that you say you know God, but only you know if you know God or not. So there's a subjective aspect of it. But here's the reality. God has spoken, and He's spoken in a way that is objective. It's testable. In fact, God said about when His prophets would speak in, in the book of Deuteronomy, among other places. God says this, he says, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name which I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, here's what God says, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, and you shall not be afraid of him. That's a pretty high standard. That God says, listen, what I want to communicate objectively, what you can test, what you can see, I want to do so in such a way, it's so important to me, that if anybody says they're speaking in my name and they get it wrong, not only don't be afraid of them, but that person should be stoned. So that nobody would be just quick to go, well, God says, well, God says. No, God says what He says. God wants to make known what He makes known. Therefore, often God would speak through the prophets something that had to do with the future so that when it came to pass exactly as they said it came to pass, they could go, whoa, that was from God. And it wasn't like the stuff that we see like on Psychic Network where you could get like two out of three and you're doing pretty good. <laughs> you got to do it every single time or it was serious. The point is, God has spoken through His prophets. It's interesting, too, though, that this idea that God has spoken through His prophets, He spoke things through these people in the Old Testament that were about a future time often. They were wanting and waiting for the Messiah to come, God's chosen King to come. They were looking forward to this time when heaven and earth would come together, the kingdom would come together. This is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For surely I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what hear and did not hear it. 
But he's talking about these righteous people who heard the prophets, and the prophets themselves wanted to know when God's kingdom would come, what God's kingdom would be like. They were longing to see this thing fulfilled. And so the author of Hebrews is wanting to make sure that these readers understand the Spirit of God wants us to understand that God has indeed spoken, and He's spoken because He wants the truth to be known. He doesn't want us to guess about what He's like, what His will is for us. He wants us to know. He doesn't want us just to make assumptions or hope for what we think is the best. He wants us to know, which is why He's been so clear to speak. Now, He says this, and it's important for us to recognize that what He's saying here is that all these things He's spoken through the prophets, but it says in verse 2, the same God has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. Now, when we talk about this reality that God speaks, yeah, it begins with this assumption that there is a God who can speak. We're assuming that's the case today. It continues through the prophets who did speak in a way that was testable and objective. But also, listen, it culminates in the person and work of Jesus. In fact, this is the first thing you need to understand is that Jesus is the conclusion of God's message. Now, I want you to imagine this for a second, okay? Imagine you're sitting through a very long sermon. That might be difficult for you, I know, but just imagine for once that you're sitting through a very long sermon and you're thinking, this guy's gabbing on and what is his point? What's he trying to get us to? Because in a very real sense, the Old Testament is like this really long sermon, except for it wasn't just by one guy preaching, many guys preaching over thousands of years. And people are thinking, what's the point? Okay, it's got something to do with this Messiah, what's the point? And then what happens? Jesus comes on the scene and says, I'm the point. (laughs) He's the conclusion of the message. It's not just that, okay, God was speaking through uh, it, uh, you know, was speaking through the Old Testament and now is speaking through Jesus. It's not just that. It's that God was speaking through the prophets to bring it to one point, and He has now spoken, past tense, full stop, through Jesus. Jesus is the message. He's the conclusion. He's what we're all longing for. When you read the Old Testament, you're going, okay, what is this pointing to? It's pointing to Jesus. This is why, listen, we see what happens in Luke 24 after Jesus has been crucified and resurrected before he ascends to heaven. What happens? He's with these, walking with these two men who are on the, on the way to this little village called Emmaus outside of Jerusalem. You guys remember the story? And, he, and he's asking them, hey, why do you guys look so sad as you're walking along? And he's like, don't you know? Didn't you hear about this Jesus guy? You're the only stranger here in Jerusalem? And he goes, well, tell me about him. And they began to say, well, you know, we thought he was the Messiah, and then he gets crucified, and now people are saying he's resurrected, we don't know what to think. And it says here, listen, Luke 24, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, the risen Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures, notice, the things concerning himself. This to me is one of the most significant scriptures in all the New Testament. Because here we have the resurrected Jesus. This is God the Son who's conquered death, who did all these radical miracles before he was crucified, who 
on the cross, in that three hours of darkness, seemed to be absorbing the very wrath of God on our behalf, who came back to life. And what does he do? Does he go, hey, stand back, part the skies, lightning bolts, it's me. Is that what he does? No, he says, let's open the scroll of the scripture. Let me just show you one by one how this all points to me. This is what I want you to know. He's the conclusion. He's the whole point of the story. It's him. Now, then the author of Hebrews, after he makes this amazingly important point, it's like he can't help but just begin to exult in who Jesus is. Because this is, this, is, this is the second thing I really want you to understand, is that not only is Jesus the conclusion of God's message, but he's actually the substance of God's message. It's not just that it leads to him or all eventually ends with him. Everything is about him. Look at some of the things that he says. Listen, he says, this, the, the son whom God has spoken in or through, he says, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Jesus is the heir of all things. Now, that means all that God has created belongs to Jesus. He's the inheritor of it. He owns it. This is important because the scripture teaches us this. Listen, because Jesus is the heir, guess what? We have an inheritance. We have an inheritance. Look, look, that's what the scripture says. Galatians 4, 7, you are no longer a slave but a son. And if, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now, my parents, bless them, don't have lots of money. My, my father passed away a couple years ago with, with nothing uh, as far as material value goes. Uh, my mom and stepdad, who hopefully you guys will get to meet in a few weeks, uh, they don't have lots of money either necessarily. I'm not looking to get any kind of good inheritance, to be honest. It's not going to happen. I, I don't know what it's like to have sort of you know, family who you think you're going to get an inheritance from. I know lots of incredibly sad stories of people who assume they're going to get an inheritance and that got ripped off and it's heartbreaking when you hear about that kind of stuff. But can you imagine, okay, if someone says to you, well, my father is the, the creator of the universe and he's going to give me everything. Everything. <laughs> and we get to inherit that with him. We get to be a part of, of that inheritance. There's no scripture in Ephesians that talks about that we and ourselves are his inheritance. He, he's excited to have us, which is mind-blowing. But he goes on to say, look, not just is he appointed heir of all things, but notice, through whom also he made the worlds. In other words, he's saying that Jesus is the creator, which is what the scripture says also in John chap, John's gospel chapter one. He created, also says it in Colossians chapter one. Jesus is the creator of, God the Son. Now this is important because, listen, because He's the Creator. Because we don't just kind of guess there's a God. This is part of the evidence why we believe there's a God is because of Jesus, okay? Because God Himself clothed Himself in human flesh and, and, and walked this earth, doing things that only God could do. But here's the deal. Because He's the Creator, guess what? We have purpose, Revelations 4.11, my sending pastor's favorite verse, it says this, for you, this, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, it says, you are worthy, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and they exist 
because you created what you pleased. It made God happy to make you. That's why you exist. And you exist to know this God who's pleased to make you. And the scripture says, pleased to save those who believe in Jesus. There's a purpose. I think the thing that probably was most instrumental, the thought that sort of irritated me to the point that I I had to pursue answers was this idea of, is there any meaning to life? And I'm, I'm talking about asking these questions at like 14 and 15 years old and, you know, trying to find answers by smoking weed or doing other stupid things that teenagers can maybe do. And, and I'm wondering, what is, is there any meaning to life? How would I know if there's meaning? Why do I exist? What's the point? I'm born, I live, I die. Even if I think I get all that I want, eventually it goes away. What gives me any assurance that there's purpose or meaning? Because there's a God who made me. And Jesus is that God. He's proof, evidence of that God. So what else does Hebrews say? Not only is he the heir of all things, not only is he the creator of the universe, but also look what it says, verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. He's not just the creator, he is the eternal son. Now this is, this is, this is an amazing thing. In fact, this is one of the one of the clearest declarations of the deity of Christ in Scripture. Because what this is talking about here, this is using language that that would be a bit technical to explain, but the point is it's using language that's analogous to our our sun in our solar system. When we go outside, especially on a really nice day today, at least it was nice earlier this morning, you go outside and you see this big yellow thing in the sky, and you can't even look completely on it. But we know now through other kinds of observations and mathematics that that sun is a long ways away, but we still experience that sun because the sun itself radiates heat and light to us at just the perfect angle that life happens on this planet. On this third rock from the sun, there's life. Why? Because just the perfect distance. And it's interesting because In a very real sense, none of us have experienced or none of us have seen the sun as it is. We couldn't if we got close enough to kind of see it just without any sort of atmospheric problems. You you know, you need a shield. It it, it blinds you, even here, right? If we stare at the sun without sunglasses, do not do that, by the way. You can go blind. Even sun reflecting off snow can cause you to go blind. That's why skiers have to wear goggles or glasses. But what we do experience is the very radiance of the sun. And it is as much the sun as the sun itself in that place. And this is kind of the language that's being used here. That, that he, when it says, listen, when it says that he is the brightness of his glory, it's that the, the radiation of God's glory is Jesus. That we feel the warmth of God in Jesus. We see the light of God through Jesus. We experience the life of God because of Jesus. That's what he's saying. And it's it's amazing too that he says even clearer, and there's the express image of his person. 
What is the character of God? If there is a God, why would we believe that He's trustworthy? Have you ever thought about that? Ever thought about the option of there's a God and He's a jerk? (laughs) I mean, some people accuse God of that. But what are you going to, seriously, let's think about that. If you honestly think that God is wicked and evil, what are you going to do about it? He's God. An all-powerful being that's evil? If He just wants to torture us, what can you do about it except complain? That's not going to help. It's not going to change it. Our only hope, if there's a God, is He's good. And this is why the good news is so good, because you look at Jesus and you go, that's why I know that God is good. He is the express image of His person. And so the God who would become a man and suffer in every way that we suffer is a good God. The God who would come and absorb the punishment that we should, we should be given to us is a good God. The God, listen, who would heal the sick and raise the dead. The God who would promise, guarantee by His resurrection that there will be justice that will come to this earth. That is a good God. And we know that because of Jesus. That's what Hebrews is trying to say. The author is trying to get over to us. He's the express image of His person. Notice he also says, and he, he up is up and upholding all things, notice, by the word of his power. See, he's not just the creator, he's not just God the Son, he's the sustainer of all things. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel, I mean, I know in my head this isn't true, so let me just be clear. I, I do know really clearly in my noggin this is not a truth, but it feels true. You know what I'm talking about? Things that you know this is not true, but it feels true. I know that God's really clear. Jesus is really clear. He never leaves me nor forsakes me. He's with me always. He's a near God. I know that. But sometimes it feels like he's way out there somewhere, and his back is turned to me. Sometimes it feels like he's, he's gone, like he's not active. And sometimes I actually believe this lie that, oh, I better, better read more of my Bible, better pray more, because if I don't do more, God's not going to work. He's not active. But that is not at all how the Bible shows the God that we worship. The Bible shows the God that we worship as a God who is living and active. We're going to see this in the book of Hebrews. He's a God, listen, <coughs> who is working in us, and who is sustaining us. It's Him who holds us together, not we who hold Him together. That's so important, especially it was so important to these guys, these Hebrews, because listen, they were believing that, that, that this God was the God of the Bible. They knew there's a difference between that God and the gods of the Greeks that were worshipped by some of their Gentile friends. But the, the thing is, when the pressure came on, they began to wonder, is our God any better than their God's? Because the Greek gods, listen, the Greek gods were thought to have the threat of coming into non-existence if people didn't pray. They had to be sustained by their believers. Mm. Guys, listen, you're not sustaining God at all. If you thumb your nose and say, I don't want nothing to do with this Jesus stuff, God will not change a bit. It's Him who sustains you. He is upholding you by the word of His power. All he has to do for any of us to be lost is to go. He holds us. 
Think about this, you who are a Jesus follower. Think about this. It's him keeping you. The Bible says it's God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. When you want to come to church, even though it feels like I'd rather stay home and watch football or barbecue or do anything else, but you still think, no, I really should go, that's not you being such a nice person, a good, faithful churchgoer. God is working in you saying, be faithful, trust me, keep going. It's God who works in you. I'm not saying you don't have a choice to make. Don't get me wrong. I'm saying, listen, the only reason you want to make that choice is because God is working in you. He sustains you. We act like our salvation, our relationship with God is all about us. It's not. It's all about Him. He sustains all things. Think about how much we worry about provision. How am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to make this happen? How I? Well, God sustains all things. I think He can work the work. He can do it. And the author of Hebrews wants the Hebrews to understand this. He sustains all things. These things aren't happening without him knowing. And he's not just the one who sustains, okay? In fact, what, before I, I finish that, let me read this scripture, 1 Peter 1, 5. It says clearly, we are kept by the power of God, notice, through faith, for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. What's keeping us? God's power. How do we remain in that, or what, what keeps us in that kept place? How do we know we're kept there? We believe. What are we being kept for? Salvation. When's that going to come? Very soon. Now, he also, listen, he's not just the one who sustains us. Look what it says. Okay? Still on verse 3. Okay? Upholding all things by the word of his power. When, notice, he, him, he had by himself purged our sins. So reference to the cross. See, the Bible talks about that, and we're going to see this unpack in the book of Hebrews, the fact that we can be declared clean because the sacrifice made for us isn't like the sacrifice of bulls and goats in the Old Testament. It's a once-for-all sacrifice which means Jesus is the purifier. He can cleanse us. Not just cover up our sin, wash it away. How can a just God look at us who still do wrong things, we still sin, how can he look at us and render us innocent? Because the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. Washes it away. Doesn't just cover it up, washes it away. Now listen, do you remember the story when Jesus is... uh, approached by the leper. I love this. Let me read to you a couple of verses from Mark's version of that story. It says, the leper came and he worshiped Jesus, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him. He touched the leper, saying, I am willing. Be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Guys, listen. Maybe you're in a situation where You're not feeling, maybe you're not experiencing full-blown persecution, but you're feeling the pressure of being the odd one out as the only believer in your workplace or in your family or in your dorm room or whatever the case might be. You're feeling like, man, this is a lot of pressure. And because of that, you're feeling like, you know what? I don't even know if I want to believe. I don't even know if God's really worthy of this. And then you're feeling guilty because you know you shouldn't feel that way. And you're wrestling with this Back and forth. Isn't it great news to know that the Jesus that we're called to trust is the one that cleanses us from all sin? 
that he's the one that when a leper comes and says, if you're willing, he doesn't just go, yeah, yeah, I'm willing, just get clean and get out of here. That he reaches out and he touches him, he looks at him, I can imagine, in the eye saying, I am willing, be cleansed. This is the Jesus we're talking about. This is what he does. This is what he's done through his death and resurrection. Not only that, listen, he sat down, it says in verse 3, at the right hand of, ma- of the majesty on high. He's not just the purifier. He's not just the sustainer. But he is now the ruler, seated on high with the Father. Now, interesting. Because Jesus is seated on high, guess what? We have a place before the throne of God. Do you understand that? You, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've been born again by the Spirit of God, here's the reality. You are seated with Him in the heavenlies. Look what the Bible says, Ephesians chapter 2. Listen. God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Did you see that word together? Together with Christ. Raised up together. Made to sit together. We have a position in Christ at the throne of God, which means we don't have to kind of go, okay, the throne's way out there. i got to see if I can get there. I'll do this good work, and I'll do that good work. No, we can boldly come. The author of Hebrews will make that really clear in chapter 4. We can come with cheerful confidence. God, I can come right into your throne. Why? Because I'm such a good person? No, because Jesus is seated there, and I'm in him. Now, I'm unpacking all this stuff because I want us to understand this is what the whole book of Hebrews is going to be, unpacking the very substance of all of God's message, which is Jesus. That God accepts us because of Jesus. That we're seen in Jesus. That we're being conformed to the image of Jesus. And that we're going to be with Jesus forever. It's going to be glorious. And it's important to these people because the truth is they're being persecuted. It says in verse 4, it says he's having have me become so much better than the angels. Now, the word angels, angel really means messenger. And we're going to talk about next week how Jesus is a better messenger than an angel. He's more than an angel. So it'll be really important if you have friends that are Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons because they believe Jesus was pretty much just an angel. He wasn't. He isn't. But he's not just a better messenger. Listen, guys, Jesus is is a better message. He's a better message. It says, listen, he's done, uh, through this inheritance he's obtained, it says, a more excellent name than they. Listen, understand, when the writer of Hebrews writes this, he's wanting them to see right away, listen, I know you're suffering, and this is why you're suffering, because of his most excellent name. See, the funny thing about suffering is that when we're suffering, no matter whatever reason we're suffering, that suffering is weighed up not just by its intensity, but by its reason. So if we're going through suffering, right, 
if we're going through something, we, 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 first thing we ask is what? Why? Why am I going through this? What is the reason? And the reason we ask why is because we want the suffering to end. We don't want to endure any longer than we have to endure. And the why will determine our motivation for endurance. Why am I suffering? The answer to that question will determine your motivation to endure that suffering. So the parent who has a sick child gets up at night, cleans up all kinds of gross bodily fluids, (laughs) holds them in their arms, and suffers sleeplessness. Why? They endure it because they love that child. Now, if I, my child's sick, and I call you up and say, if I call Joe, Deacon Joe, Joe, you're a deacon, I'm a pastor, there's some authority thing going on. Okay, so Joe, come to my house, because Bubba's throwing up everywhere. I need you to clean that up for me. Now, actually, Joe would probably come, because he's that nice of a guy. (laughs) (laughs) And he's a doctor, yes. So Joe shows up, and 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 he's kind of gagging as he's cleaning up poor Bubba's vomit, and, and I'm sleeping comfortably in bed, and Joe's thinking, this is suffering. Why am I doing this? How long do I need to suffer? And he would have to decide, you know, is Bubba worth doing this for? Is, is John worth doing this for? And he'd be wise to say, probably not. This is John's job. He should do this, not me. I, I say this because, listen, the author of Hebrews is wanting these guys to get a perspective, not of, hey, guess what, you're going to suffer, but, but it's okay, it's no big deal. He's going to spend the bulk of his time unpacking the sufferings of the God that we follow, the sufferings of our Savior, so that we recognize, listen, okay, even though we are called to endure some sufferings because He suffered, it's Him And his suffering for us, that's the motivation. It's him that we want to keep our eyes on. Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame. Why? For the joy set before him. The joy of all of us who know him, being with he and the Father and experiencing that fellowship for eternity. He endured it for that. And the author of Hebrews wants these guys to know and the Holy Spirit wants us to know he's worth it. He's worth enduring for. He is our motivation to endure. I'll close with this scripture. Romans chapter 8. I'm again quoting from the NLT, New Living Translation, because I like the way it paraphrases this. It says, and since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share in his glory, we must also share his suffering. Yet, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. See, my prayer for us is that we will get from Hebrews what the Spirit of God intends us to get from Hebrews. Hebrews teaches us that all these things in the Old Testament are shadows that have their fulfillment in the New Testament. The reality is the New Testament. 
which is why I kind of exhort you guys on a regular basis. If you're not in, in the habit of reading the Scriptures, start with the New Testament, read it, know it well, and then go look at the shadows. Know the reality so you can recognize the reality in the shadows. Hebrews shows us this. Hebrews also reminds us that it's Jesus and Jesus alone that we need. He's all we need. You know, I, I love that we have a good church. We have a great church. I'm so thankful to be a part of servants. We're, we're a good, healthy, growing church. I'm really thankful for it. But you know, less than this that we need is Him. We need Jesus. And also Hebrews is going to teach us how to endure hardship. Because listen, it's not getting any easier, is it, for us to follow Jesus. You know, it's never really been easy to follow Jesus. It's been easy to be a Christian in a religious sense at different times in history, but it's never been easy to follow Jesus. <laughs> it's always been difficult. How do we endure those difficulties? By keeping our eyes on Jesus. And Hebrews teaches us how to do that. My prayer is that we would want to learn these lessons, that we would want to draw close to him, that we would let the Holy Spirit be our teacher as we go through Hebrews.